When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 24, A Wolf Among Hounds. In 641 BC, Ancus Martius, Sabine noble and grandson of Numa Pompilius, became the fourth king of Rome. The final years of his predecessor, Tullus Hostilius, had been a veritable potpourri of tragedies and ill omens. A horrible plague had swept through the city, ravaging the population and eliminating their ability to make war on their neighbors. While grasping about for a cause, the Romans had seized upon their recent immigrants, the Albans, who'd been resettled in Rome after their conquest by Tullus Hostilius. The rumor began to spread that the Albans had forsaken the gods of their ancestors and their new home was being punished for their loss of devotion. Tullus Hostilius, who'd spent most of his reign campaigning with little thought to his religious duties, made the kingly call that if Rome was to survive, he'd better get himself some serious religion, and right quick. Rifling through the files of his predecessor, Numa, a pious man if there ever was one, he came across the perfect solution, a ceremony honoring the supreme Roman god, Jupiter. Without delay, he grabbed the necessary paraphernalia and set about performing the rite of sacrifice. Unfortunately, he did such an amazingly horrible job of it that, legend has it, a lightning bolt immediately shot down from the sky and incinerated Tullus Hostilius where he stood. I don't think you need to be a religious scholar to get the gist of that one. After presumably sweeping up the pile of ash and repairing the hole in the roof, Ancus Martius took up somewhat nervous residence in the royal palace. Aside from the plague, which apparently faded away shortly thereafter, the Rome he inherited bore his predecessor's mark in several notable respects. First, the population had grown significantly through the conquest and incorporation of the Albans. Second, as a consequence of this, the original meeting house of the local nobility, known as senators, had been outgrown, and a new building, the Curia Hostilia, had been constructed in a corner of the Forum Romanorum. This new building would remain the site of the Roman Senate thereafter. Even today, the Parliament of Italy stands just a few hundred yards away. Like his grandfather, Ancus Martius was a pacifist by nature, and his mandate from the Roman assembly who'd elected him was to ease up on the regular campaigning. 
Unfortunately, his predecessor had spent the majority of his reign making enemies of Rome's neighbors, so peace was no longer an option. The first to come calling were the Old Latins, or Prisci Latini, who shared a common language and culture with the Romans. After giving them the I'm-not-looking-for-any-trouble-here speech, Ancus Martius was left little choice but to resort to armed conflict. The Roman declaration of war against the Old Latins marked the first appearance of the ritual of the Fecialis, which would be repeated through the history of the later Republic. The Fecialis were special priests whose job was to establish that each Roman war was just. Once they had made this decision, the priest would go to the frontier of the enemy's lands and ceremonially throw a spear over the border. The prosecution of the war was then handed over to the Roman military commander, during this period the king. As the old Latins would quickly learn, the Romans, even when reluctant, were not to be trifled with. Roman forces conquered several leading cities of the old Latins, and, as per their M.O. of the period, demolished the cities and absorbed their defeated citizens into the population of Rome. As the Albans had settled in the Celian Hill, the old Latins got the Aventine. Another hill, the Janiculum, was also fortified against possible future aggression from Rome's Etrurian neighbors to the north. The Janiculum was connected to the rest of the city through the construction of Rome's first wooden bridge over the Tiber, the Pons Sublicius. In addition to his conquest over the Old Latins and his numerous infrastructure projects, Martius's most important accomplishment was extending Rome's territory to the sea through his founding of the ancient port of Ostia, some 16 miles from the city proper. You can also bet that, after the whole lightning bolt incident, Martius was not about to skimp in the area of religion. Along with establishing the priesthood and ceremony of the Fecialis, Martius also instructed the Pontifex Maximus to copy Numa's commentaries on religious ceremonies and have them posted publicly, so that from now on they would be performed both correctly and on schedule. He also expanded the Temple of Jupiter to both honor the god and Rome's recent military successes. Over his reign, Martius earned a reputation as a calm and temperate ruler, equally skilled in the arts of peace and war. As fitting reward, he passed away of natural causes in the 24th year of his rule. The custom of the period was that the People's Assembly, or Comitia Curiata, was responsible for electing each Roman king. In 616 BC, a noble came before the body to plead his case for succeeding Ancus Martius to the throne. Although a relative newcomer to the city, Lucius Tarquinius Priscus hailed from a prominent family. His father, Demaratus, had been driven from Corinth by the tyrant Cypselus and relocated his family to the Etrurian city of Tarquinii. As a young man, Lucius had inherited his father's vast fortune and married a local Etruscan noblewoman named Tanaquil. However, even with these advantages, he'd still found his political ambitions blocked due to his father's Greek origin. What he needed was to find a place that was not yet hidebound by ancient traditions, a place where wealth, nobility, and ambition could still find their just reward. Hmm, if only such a place existed. I guess we'll never know. Tarquinius moved to Rome during the reign of Ancus Martius, and his many admirable qualities soon brought him to the king's attention. 
The two men became close friends, to the extent that Martius made Tarquinius the guardian of his two sons. Upon Martius's death, Tarquinius suggested that the boys go off hunting for a few days to take their mind off things, while he took care of matters in Rome. While they were away, Tarquinius immediately went before the Comitia Curiata and proposed himself for election as king. Getting the sons out of the way was not a necessity. After all, there was no Roman tradition of hereditary kingship. But still, it probably didn't hurt his chances, especially since he was asking the Romans to elect, for the first time, a king who'd been born outside the city. In the end, his arguments persuaded the assembly, and Lucius Tarquinius Priscus, otherwise known as Tarquin the Elder, became the first Etruscan king of Rome. Rome's enemies had grown bolder during the interregnum, and, like his predecessor, Tarquin also began his reign in conflict with the Latins. But it was the remaining free Sabines, those who'd not yet joined the population of Rome, who proved the greater challenge. Bolstered by additional soldiers sent by five Etruscan cities, the Sabines fought several bloody battles against the Romans, including one in the streets of Rome itself. In the end, Tarquin's forces emerged victorious, and the new king held a proper Roman triumph to celebrate, dressed in a robe of purple and gold and drawn by a chariot of four horses. Over the next several years, Tarquin captured a half-dozen more Latin cities and brought them under Roman rule. As the king had never returned the Etruscan prisoners captured during his earlier war with the Sabines, their home cities declared war on Rome. Other Etruscan cities joined in, and soon Rome was staring down the forces of a dozen Etruscan kings. Even against these odds, Tarquin proved victorious, and was able to both extend Rome's dominion over the cities and gain large amounts of plunder in the bargain. After paying his troops, Tarquin diverted most of the remaining funds into several Roman infrastructure projects designed to enhance the prestige of his adopted city. He drained the damp lowlands of Rome by constructing the Cloaca Maxima, Rome's great sewer, and in their place laid out the Roman Forum, a public square with shops and monumental buildings. He also built a stone wall around the city, and began construction of a new temple, in honor of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, on the Capitoline Hill. He also built the Circus Maximus, the first and largest stadium in Rome devoted to horse racing. Tarquin also left his mark on Rome by increasing the size of the Senate, adding a hundred men from minor noble families, and by doubling the size of the Roman cavalry. In general, his long 37-year reign was a popular one, with two notable exceptions, the sons of Ancus Martius, who had never forgiven Tarquin for what they considered usurping their rightful throne. In 679 BC, the two hired a pair of assassins, who approached Tarquin in a public forum. While one distracted him, the other crept up behind the king and buried an axe in his skull. Spiriting his body back to the palace, Tarquin's powerful wife, Tanaquil, quickly spread the word that the king was only injured, and it appointed a man named Servius Tullius, a member of the royal household, to act as regent until he recovered. Once this fiction had been disseminated, Tanaquil then permitted word of Tarquin's death be released. In one bold stroke, Tanaquil had outmaneuvered both the sons of Ancus Martius and Tarquin's own sons, not to mention the whole Roman system of government, by placing a man of her own choosing upon the throne of Rome. 
So, why Tullius instead of her own sons? Well, it turns out that Tanaquil was a huge believer in omens. Just as she had supposedly foreseen her husband's rise to power, she'd also foreseen that Servius Tullius was destined to succeed him. Tullius's own origins are obscure, though his name implies a servile, i.e. slave, origin. In order to cover up any troubling rumors in this account, it's believed that he and Tanaquil concocted a backstory that he was a captive prince from Corniculum, a city conquered early in Tarquin's rule, who'd been brought up in the royal household. So he may have been a slave, but he was a noble slave, right? Because that's totally different. Other than the substantial doubts about his origins, the lie that had installed him as regent, and the fact that the whole Roman election system had been subverted, Tullius started out his rule in pretty great shape. The sons of Ancus Martius had fled into exile after the failure of their plot, leaving only Tarquin's own sons, Lucius and Aaron's, as possible threats. Tullius promptly married the two former princes off to his own daughters, while he himself married Tarquin's daughter, Tarquinia, binding the two families as tightly as he could. Then he kept his fingers crossed and hoped for a distraction to get everyone's mind off the dubious succession. Enter the Etruscan city of Vey, who decided the whole shaky transition was a good excuse to declare their former peace treaty expired and launch a fresh war against Rome. Tullius immediately took to the field with the Roman army, and, after a short and well-executed campaign, was able to rout the enemy. The victory had exactly the desired effect, as talk of his succession was soon displaced by talk of his bravery and sound leadership during the conflict. Aside from a few additional skirmishes against the Etruscans, the remainder of Tullius's reign was mainly free from external conflict and war. We'll get more into how Rome changed under the rule of Tullius in a later episode. Before making our way back eastward, I also wanted to catch up with the other growing power in the central Mediterranean, the Phoenicians of Carthage. By the mid-7th century BC, Carthage had grown to become a major manufacturing center, as well as a regional trade hub, with an industrial area just outside the city walls that featured potter's kilns, as well as workshops for purple dye production and metalworking. Luxury items, including terracotta figurines, masks, jewelry, and ivory figures, were also crafted for export to other Phoenician colonies. As the city grew in size, its demands for resources also increased. Since Carthage possessed little in the way of fertile hinterland, it still relied on overseas sources for most of its food. In response to this need, Carthage founded several new colonies on the nearby island of Sardinia. It was probably a mix of necessity and pride that changed the Phoenician approach to these colonies, which no longer sought to either mix or bargain with the locals, but instead were fortified for defense and geared toward the maximum extraction of resources, including both minerals and agricultural produce. To many scholars, the rise of Carthage coincides with the adoption of a more strictly imperialistic policy by the Phoenicians, one that may have arisen in response to the similar approach used by their main colonial rivals, the Greeks. Even as the news of the Neo-Assyrian collapse was borne westward on Levantine trading ships, Carthage spent the last quarter of the 7th century BC in a general trajectory of increasing growth and prosperity. 
During the first quarter of the 6th century, disruptions in the metals trade, due to an oversupply of silver in the Near East, resulted in a dramatic drop of the volume of metal flowing from Spain to the Levant. The smaller Spanish colonies, no longer able to rely on the frequent runs of Phoenician trading ships to keep them resupplied, had to be abandoned. The situation was exacerbated by Nebuchadnezzar's protracted siege of Tyre, which wreaked further havoc on Phoenician maritime trade. While the regional silver glut did a great deal of damage to the east-west trading circuit, primarily controlled by the Levantine Phoenicians, it had little impact on the north-south trading circuit, managed by Carthage. In this central Mediterranean arena, Carthage's main rivals continued to be the Greeks, who had embarked upon a second massive wave of colonization at the start of the 6th century BC. Initially, these new colonies were established in the northern Aegean and along the Black Sea coasts, where their competition for prime real estate was limited to other Greeks. However, once the best sites had all been claimed, the Greeks turned their attention back to the western Mediterranean, modern coastal France and Spain, a territory which they'd previously ceded virtually uncontested to the Phoenicians. Expanding outward from Magna Graecia, the Greeks founded the new northern colonies of Antipolis, modern Antibes, Nicaea, modern Nice, and Messalia, modern Marseille, the latter of which would grow to become a critical hub from which Greek culture was spread to the early Celtic peoples of Gaul and Central Europe. New Greek colonies were also planted along the eastern coast of Corsica, on the Aeolian Islands, along the eastern Iberian coast, in Cyrenaica, opposite the Greek mainland, and in Egypt, which welcomed both their military skill and, a close second, their imported Greek wine. All this was beginning to make for a very crowded western Mediterranean, and Carthage was definitely feeling the pressure. Along with the economic threat posed by the Greeks, there was also the constant threat of roving bands of pirates, always on the hunt for a fat trading ship laden with precious metals and other exotic goods. Adequate defense required advances in shipbuilding by both Phoenicians and Greeks that eventually culminated in the supreme warship of the age, the Trireme. The Trireme's origins are somewhat shrouded in mystery. The earliest direct precursor, known as a Pentaconter, was a versatile long-range ship used for sea trade, piracy, and warfare. Rowed by 50 oarsmen, arranged in two rows of 25 on each side, Pentaconters were also equipped with a midship sail and mast for propulsion under a favorable wind. The next major advancement in ship design, the Byreme, featured two decks with two rows of oarsmen. Based on the vessel's depiction on vases and pottery fragments, the Byreme's development is commonly dated to the 8th century BC. By the end of the 8th century, the first references are found to the massive three-decked warships known as triremes. While the Corinthians sometimes took credit for the design, the Sidonians probably stake the more credible claim. Fragments from an 8th century BC relief at Nineveh appear to depict both biremes and triremes among the Phoenician fleets of Tyre and Sidon. 
Herodotus also records Necho II building triremes for the Egyptian fleet in the late 7th century. But then Necho's Egypt had strong ties with both the Phoenicians and Greeks, and could have obtained the design from either ally. So, what was so special about the trireme? In short, it was bigger, faster, and more maneuverable than any previous Mediterranean warship. It featured two sails, one large, one small, in order to catch transverse winds, and a large foredeck near the prow where archers could stand and rain down arrows upon their enemies. But the most potent weapon borne by the trireme was a massive bronze ram, secured at the end of the prow, and used to tear holes in the sides of enemy ships. In terms of overall design, stability, strength, speed, and pretty much everything else, the trireme pushed the technological limits of the era, with every aspect maximized up to the point that it interfered with another critical parameter. The ships were typically manned by crews of 200, which, along with oarsmen, included a captain, a helmsman, and a few dozen experienced sailors and warriors. Naval tactics of the day were fairly straightforward. Ram and sink the enemy ship, or, failing that, board and seize it in close combat. The limited number of dedicated warriors on each ship, often less than a dozen, made each man's skills vital in either assaulting an enemy ship or in protecting his own oarsmen below decks. The trireme was designed for day-long journeys, a maximum distance of around 60 miles, and lacked the capacity to stay at sea overnight. Storage facilities on board were adequate to provide each crewman with the two gallons of fresh drinking water he needed each day, but left little room for additional provisions. This meant that the crew was dependent on either the merchant ships they escorted or the local peoples and resources wherever they put in each night in order to resupply. By the 6th century BC, triremes were widely used by both the Greeks and Phoenicians to accompany their trading ships through often treacherous Mediterranean waters. However, despite their growing animosity, there's no record of direct sea battles in this era between the two commercial rivals. In fact, when military conflict finally broke out, Ground Zero was, unsurprisingly, the centrally located and resource-rich island of Sicily. The Phoenicians had gotten to Sicily first, in the early 8th century BC, and made their commercial inroads by building relationships with the island's native inhabitants, of whom the Elemians were the most prominent. When the first Greeks had arrived decades later, they'd seized the land they wanted and violently expelled any natives who resisted. This dynamic drove the Elemians to ally themselves with the Phoenicians, clearly the lesser of two colonial evils. A quasi-stable situation resulted over the following decades, in which each side went about their business and either dominated or traded with local communities in order to obtain the resources they desired. In general, both the colonists and, to a lesser extent, the natives in their vicinity prospered from the new status quo, as reflected in the large amount of monumental construction undertaken during the period. It was only in the early 6th century BC that the Greeks, feeling that they'd outgrown their part of the island, began eyeing the less populous Phoenician territories in the west and northwest. In 580 BC, Greek colonists from Cnidus and Rhodes attempted to establish a settlement opposite the major Phoenician colony of Motia. 
The Phoenicians invoked their alliance with the native Elemians, and a combined military force engaged the Greeks and drove them back into the sea. In the battle's aftermath, the city of Motia was fortified with defensive walls and watchtowers. But the Phoenicians, particularly the Carthaginians, knew that true defense against the Greeks would only come in the form of an even more powerful regional alliance. Shortly after the Motia conflict, the leaders of Carthage entered into negotiations on this score with their major partners in the lucrative Tyranian trading circuit, the cities of Etruria. The 6th century BC also saw Carthaginian advancements on several other fronts. Later Roman sources credit additional military conquests on the island of Sardinia to two Carthaginian generals. The first, Malchus, would later rebel against his home city and lose his life in the bargain. The second, Mago, sent a military expedition commanded by his two sons, Hasdrubal and Hamilcar. Despite Hasdrubal's death in battle, the Carthaginians succeeded in capturing the southern half of the island, forcing several local tribes to flee to the interior. Archaeological excavations confirm the mid-6th century BC as a time of extreme conflict on the island, with several Phoenician and Nuragic settlements bearing signs of violent destruction. The Carthaginians were also advancing in another direction, into the African interior. Whether through military action or deals struck with local Libyan chieftains, Carthage slowly expanded its control over the fertile Majerda Valley and the Cap Bon Peninsula through the construction of a number of forts and settlements. Aside from providing additional agricultural produce, the new African holdings also provided land for the construction of large villas for the wealthy Carthaginian elite. Meanwhile, back on the Greek mainland, the early 6th century BC continued to be an era of growth, turmoil, and experimentation, especially in the realm of politics. The golden age of its premier city, Corinth, continued under the rule of the tyrant Periander, who founded numerous colonies, built a stone ramp across the Isthmus of Corinth, founded the Isthmian Games, and otherwise behaved, for the most part, as the very model of a benevolent dictator. There were, of course, some exceptions, murdering his wife, exiling his son, etc. But overall, Periander remained popular, and, unlike other Greek tyrants, never needed a bodyguard and died peacefully in his sleep, of natural causes, in 581 BC. It was during his succession that, once again, the Corinthians proved themselves to be the Greek trendsetters. Periander's original wish had been for his son, Lycophron, to succeed him as tyrant. Still perturbed about the whole killing his mom and exiling him affair, Lycophron had only agreed to return to Corinth if his father would, simultaneously, relocate to his current home on the island of Corfu. Periander had agreed, but the inhabitants of Corfu were apparently so worried about the ex-tyrant setting up in their neighborhood that they killed Lycophron in order to prevent the swap. Periander's nephew, Sometticus, stood next in line for succession. Unfortunately, this handoff didn't go any better. After 70 years and two generations of tyranny, the Corinthians were apparently ready for a change, and had the young would-be tyrant assassinated. Just like that, Carthage was free from tyranny, an example that other Greek Peleus were soon to follow, 
But paradoxically, the city was soon to lose its cutting-edge reputation to an upstart former Greek backwater known as Athens. We last left Athens under the rule of the Archon Draco, he of the harsh legal code, and in a general state of political turmoil. In the early 6th century BC, conditions were exacerbated by a severe agrarian crisis that ravaged the Athenian countryside. The rich responded, as the rich often do, by tightening the screws on their poor tenant farmers, driving them further into poverty. At the same time, the Athenians cast about for more good arable farmland, and soon fixed their gaze on the nearby island of Salamis. After digging through their ancient texts and conveniently verifying their rightful historic claim to the island, Athens declared war on the current claimant, the city of Megara. Since Megara was commonly considered a minor, third-rate military power, the Athenians believed the conflict would be brief. They were correct, except that it was Megara who emerged victorious. The military loss and growing social instability threw the Athenians into a serious bout of soul-searching. In 594 BC, the ruling elite made pretty much the best call they could under the circumstances. They identified the wisest man in the city and handed him the reins of power. Not as a tyrant, the Athenians had so far managed to avoid that particular scenario, but in the traditional role of archon, or chief magistrate. The gentleman's name was Solon, and his name echoes down to us today as a byword for good governance. So what did he do? Well, first off, wanting to have a fresh start, Solon declared the vast majority of Draco's laws null and void. Next, he declared all debts canceled, and abolished the institution of debt slavery. This was not done strictly for altruistic reasons, but also, as he argued to their fuming creditors, to reestablish the strong, free peasant base upon which the continuing strength and prosperity of Athens depended. The powers that be relented. After all, they'd given Solon a mandate to do as he saw fit, and could surely abide some debt forgiveness as long as their traditional privileges were maintained. Little did they know, Solon was just getting started. For too long, Athenian politics had been the exclusive province of the Eupatridae, the well-born, and had been both driven and shackled by the narrow self-interest of this hereditary oligarchy. Recognizing both their pent-up potential and threat, Solon altered the Athenian constitution to allow the newly wealthy to also run for city office. Then, in an even bolder move, he opened the Ecclesia, or People's Assembly, to all Athenian citizens regardless of wealth. While the poor were not permitted to speak, I mean, let's not get crazy, they did gain the power to both elect city officials and hold them accountable for their actions. This was major, and would have huge, huge repercussions down the road. In his own words, Solon sought to preserve the powerful from the hatred of the oppressed. Taking my stand, I used my strong shield to protect both sides of the class divide, allowing neither to gain an advantage over the other that would be unjust. Solon's written legal code, put on public display, granted freedom, legal protection, and political access to the poor, while restricting actual political office to the wealthy elite. Satisfied with the balance he'd struck, 
Solon declared that all of his laws should remain in force for at least the next decade, or century, if you believe Plutarch. He then dropped the mic on the stage, left the Archon ship, and took off on a 10-year Mediterranean cruise, because that's just how Solon rolled. Solon's reforms did provide Athens with several decades of stability, growth, and prosperity. By 575 BC, a great stone ramp had been driven up to the gateway of the ancient Mycenaean citadel that overlooked the city. Before long, the construction of new buildings and statues, funded by the great families of Athens, turned the Acropolis into a shrine as magnificent as any other in Greece. At the same time, Athenian black-figure pottery began to be exported in ever-increasing numbers, and soon eclipsed Corinthian as the Aegean standard. Yes, things were looking up in Athens. Even that pesky war with Megara over Salamis, the one that had started back up again during Solon's archonship, was finally heading toward an Athenian victory, due to the superb military skills of the commanding general. What was his name again? Pisistratus? Yes, something like that. I hear he'll be coming back to the city again soon. Very soon. Next episode... Wow, I really didn't get anywhere as far as I planned this time around. But that's okay. I'm happy to let the 6th century BC take whatever time it takes to cover all the material I want to. Which, next time, will hopefully include all things east of the Greek mainland from Ionia to the Zagros, and even feature a few key pit stops by our new favorite wandering sage, Solon of Athens. All this next time on The Ancient World.